0: From Rheumatology Republic, I'm Wendy John. This is In Conversation Podcast. Professor Catherine Hill is a name you are probably very familiar with, an esteemed researcher, clinical rheumatologist the immediate past president of the ARA and recipient of the 2022 PAR Prize. Professor Hills also more recently been appointed as chair of the Education Committee for APLA, and she leads the Rheumatology Research Group at the Basil Hetzel Institute in South Australia, and also is involved in OMARAC, the Outcome Measures in Rheumatology Initiative. Needless to say, she's pretty busy, so I'm delighted that we've secured a bit of time with her for our In Conversation podcast at Rheumatology Republic. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor Hill.
1: Oh, Thanks so much for inviting me, Wendy. It's an absolute pleasure.
0: Congratulations on the PAR Prize this year.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, I was delighted to be the recipient of the PAR Prize, but as I was explaining to some others, you know, it's... It's a body of work over many years, and it's also not just my efforts. It's, a, it's really a team effort. I have a fantastic team who I work with at the Rheumatology Research Group at the Basil Hetzel Institute, which is adjacent to the hospital where I work, Queen Lister Hospital in Adelaide.
0: And research really is very much a team effort, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, yeah. We, we've, we've slowly built up a, a team which is predominantly clinician researchers but also includes a very able hospital scientist, Sue Lester, who does most of the statistical analysis and has really enriched our team. And we also encourage medical students and basic physician trainees as well as the advanced trainees to get involved with research on our unit.
0: So research has been a huge part of your career. What is it about research that's so appealing to you?
1: I guess I'm a bit of a numbers person and I'm also quite curious. <laughs> and I think Good so
0: combination.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I've, I've just always enjoyed the research aspect. I was introduced to that when I first started rheumatology training. I actually hadn't done any research as a medical student or a, or a basic trainee, apart from, I think, do one case report. And then I was introduced to research when I started yeah, rheumatology advanced training, and I just always enjoyed it since then. But my research career hasn't hasn't gone in a directly linear approach. I didn't go, I I didn't go straight into a PhD after my rheumatology training. It
0: wasn't a a straight arrow path of getting to where you are.
1: No, no, not at all. So I at the end of my training, I had my first child, and then I worked part time as a a rheumatology consultant for. A, Two and a half years, and then I was lucky enough to get the ARA AFA field fellowship, which allowed me to go to Boston and work with Professor David Felton. And that was in the Boston University Rheumatology Unit, which was an incredible experience. But again, I did research there, and I did a Masters in Epidemiology and Biostatistics at BU. Um, How long? David, the- how long were you there for? Um, we were there for two two fantastic years actually and so David's approach wasn't PhD type approach. He really felt that he wanted to give me epidemiology training in a few different areas. So I was doing three different projects and one of them was my master's and I also did coursework as part of the EP and Biostat and I was involved in a fantastic project there which was my master's thesis which was looking at cancer and scientists and we used really interesting data from three Nordic countries so that was Finland, Sweden and Denmark and that paper was actually published in the Lancet so it was, mm. it was an amazing opportunity for me. What are the advantages
0: of taking that approach rather than doing a PhD?
1: Yeah, so there's advantages and disadvantages. I guess being able to do that amount of coursework meant that the I did, I got a lot of basic principles and and did all of the statistical analysis predominantly myself. So that was, you know, that was really key and it did. It did give me a lot of skills, that I don't know whether I would have got in a PhD at that time in Australia. But when I came back, I found not having a PhD was difficult because it meant that I couldn't supervise PhD students myself. And so after so, I kept doing research when I got back. I got some grants and built um, up my research. But in 2009, at the University of Adelaide, they had an MD program which meant that I could put together my research and submit as a a doctoral thesis. So I actually got an MD in 2009 and that counted as a high high degree, actually higher than a PhD at my university. Mm. So that meant that I could start supervising PhD students and that sort of led to an expansion in the, in the group as well. So yeah. I think a PhD has got advantages, but what I did also did. So, you know, I, and it also suited my lifestyle. I mean, after I turned back from Boston, we had two more children. Then I've always worked part-time since I've had my kids.
0: There's still a huge amount of work that you've been putting in, I imagine, that was beyond that which you got paid for.
1: So In the early days, a lot of my research was done sort of, you know, after hours and in the evenings and things. But, you know, when you enjoy something, I, you know, I, I don't really begrudge that. Not at all. And I've been lucky enough to have a staff specialist job where we, we do have dedicated time for, for research. It's not a lot, but it is some. Um,
0: what are the pieces the, of research that you have found most rewarding in your career? Obviously that first paper that's published in The Lancet when you were in Boston, what other pieces have you gone, yeah, that that felt good?
1: When I got back from Boston, I got an HMRC grant, which was, and we did a multi-centre trial of fish oil in the osteoarthritis. So when that piece of work finally got published in 2016, that felt very good. Yeah. <laughs> and even though it was... It was a negative study and had lots of interesting things in it. That was really satisfying. But I think mentoring the trainees and the PhD students is definitely the most rewarding part of what I do now. I absolutely love that and watching them there skills grow watching them have their first papers and watching them you know start to write graphs and start to get independent research careers that's mm. definitely the most rewarding what my, probably the, i learned most from david Felson because he took mentoring of his research students extremely seriously and we would have weekly meetings he was always available so he was a really good role model for me of what good mentoring can look like
0: what does good mentoring look like
1: I think time and finding PhD students who've got a good fit is also really helpful. So when students come to me and they want to do research work with me, I encourage them, you know, we have a discussion, but I also encourage them to talk to the other PhD students who work with me so they find out what what it's like. You know, regular meetings, always having an open door, being supportive when they need need it and that might and that means you know reading papers on time grants or whatever they need. What
0: about when you might need to give a student some feedback that isn't necessarily positive or that you're wanting to it it might be it might be constructive feedback how is the best way to approach that kind of thing?
1: I think when you're having regular meetings I don't you know, I find it quite easy because when things are starting to go a bit awry, you can hit them in the bud earlier rather than waiting for things to go really, really down a bad track and I think just being honest, being honest and transparent but still being supportive. Those are, you know, if I've agreed to take a PhD student on, you know, I've also entered a pact to be, you know, open and, and supportive to them and also asking them what I could do better if they are struggling, you know, what could... What could we as a team do to help them? You know, if things are starting to fall behind. You know, we, we have sometimes have a medical student who can, you know, help out a PhD student if they've got some data that needs extracting or whatever. So, you know, just little things like that can really, really help.
0: I know patient-centred care is something that is very important to you. When is it going to become a norm, patient, patient-centred research? Is it any time in the near future?
1: great strides and I think I think the research bodies are actually helping us with that because you know they're expecting us to have patient research partners involved in our research, you know, expecting consumer and carer involvement in research. And I think that's you know a really a really good step forward. I'm one of my more recent roles since I stepped down as president of the ARA is that I'm now medical director of arthritis South Australia and we're working with some patient partners to get together a a patient research panel so that when researchers you know come forward with a with what they think is a great idea they can go to some you know well well well-informed and well-supported patients who can help them out with their perspective on the on the research and that can be something as simple as Looking at the number of visits that, that the researcher wants to do and say, well, you know, that's really not feasible for the majority of patients with this condition because it's hard to get places. Or it can be saying, you know, this is a problem that we as patients have and, you know, we would love you to research this. A great example is we've been, the work we do with OMRAP is very patient centred and we've done, we've been looking a lot at glucocorticoids Side effects. And we've done work doing qualitative research with patients and also survey work. And we looked at survey work by other researchers. And patients said again and again that fatigue was a problem with glucocorticoids. And we, as researchers, can't, we didn't, re, this didn't really resonate with us because we think of the fatigue. Of being related to the disease process, not the medication. So, we've undertaken a, a survey through Ellen Lyons, the a PhD student working with me, where we are asking patients about their fatigue and how much furor they're on and what their disease activity is like, and then we're following them over a 12 month period. And the exciting thing about this is it's a collaboration that we're doing with New Zealand, with India and Bangladesh. So I was invited to give a talk at the Indian Rheumatology Association back in 2019 when we did things like travel. <laughs> and I've some researchers, and I, and I saw a really interesting poster that they'd done and so now we're collaborating with them, which is, yeah, which is great.
0: And that's through OMARACT?
1: So yes, that is through OMARACT, yes. Yeah.
0: What else yeah. is happening in that space?
1: So OMRAC is outcome measures in rheumatology and it's an independent group that seeks to move forward with the best outcome measures. And this has been a game changer in rheumatology because, you know, one of the reasons we've We've been able to show how well the, the new drugs work is because we've had great outcome measures and OMRAC has been really instrumental in that. And they have various working groups with different diseases. So I'm involved in a few of those. I'm actually on the technical advisory group for OMRAC, but I'm also the chair of the glucocorticoid working group, which is one that I set up with Sarah Mackie and also the polymyalgia rheumatica group as well and also the handoff judge Writers group. So yeah, so that keeps me that keeps me busy as well,
0: actually. Your publication track record's pretty hard to fathom, like ninety five papers in between twenty nineteen and twenty twenty two and you're on a whole range of different committees and working groups. How do you actually achieve that amount of work logistically without sleep deprivation? <laughs>
1: I told my 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 family. Yeah, my house is a bit of a mess. Actually, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not the best housekeeper. I can tell
0: you. I do need to add that you don't need to be a good housekeeper when you win the par prize. I mean, <laughs> some things are more important than housework. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I I, I guess that I, you know, I haven't written all of those papers clearly and and many of them have been, you know, collaboration. But just, you know, working through, trying to be efficient, I don't embark on any research unless I think there's going to be a paper at the end of it. And that sounds like, you know, that sounds terrible. But I just figure, what, what is the point of starting some research, which you think is not... It's not going to be useful to, to people beyond our group. So, therefore, I, I you know, we, that we always have a that as the goal. And I think also, to be honest, I think the pandemic has actually helped as well. <laughs> helped mm. as well because we haven't been travelling so much, and so that's given us a little bit more time to concentrate on the, the work we had already going. And it was a little bit harder to start new things. So, um, that. Said, I'm, you know, really looking forward to start to get back to going to conferences, and I'm really looking forward to going to the ARA meeting face to face next May. That'll, That'll be, be wonderful. In my two years of being president of the ARA, you know, we we had you know hybrid meetings, and we didn't have even one face to face board meeting, so that was disappointing. Let's hear a bit
0: about your work at the Basil Hetzel Institute and and the Australian Arthritis and Autoimmune Bank, at the A three BC.
1: I've been involved with the ARAD database for a long time. Obviously, that was set up by Rochelle Bookbinder, in March, and Marissa Lesbier back in 2003. And our group has done a lot of really great research emanating from that, including Rachel Black's PhD, looking at glucocorticoids, we've looked at opioids. We've also got some really interesting data coming through looking at socioeconomic the status and the effect in particularly in rheumatoid arthritis. So that's work that... Oscar Russell presented at the May meeting which shows that low people from low SES with rheumatoid arthritis start with worse function with rheumatoid arthritis and they never catch up to people of high SES in fact the gap might might actually widen so we're further exploring reasons why we have this persistent this gap and how we can improve that for our patients. And also in March, obviously we started the A3BC and we're the South Australian node for that. So we started recruiting patients to the A3BC, which is the biobank. So some of the patients who were in the ARAD have now joined the A3BC and are providing, you know, um, specimens for that. And then we're actively recruiting for that as well. So that's really exciting and obviously there's been another MRSS grant which is A3BC for kids so we'll be recruiting children as well in collaboration with the Wings and Children's Hospital so that's really exciting.
0: Do you think that your background as an epidemiologist is highly sought after and there's not enough of that background in rheumatology in Australia?
1: One of the reasons I went to Boston was that when I raised the issue of wanting to do a epidemiology higher degree, there wasn't really anyone to supervise me. There was Lynn March who was instrumental in helping me get the grant to go to Boston. She helped me write it, even though she'd met me once at a conference. And I was an advanced trainer in Adelaide and was based in Sydney, so I'll always remember her in, she was so instrumental in getting me across there. So that's what happened then. But, you know, things have really changed. And I think there's a lot more clinician scientists in rheumatology now with that sort of background. There's, you know, people like, you know, Rochelle Bookbinder, after that came back from Canada, Lynn March, Anita Waluka, Flavia Shikotini, um, Mandy Dickport, so Brian Jones, you know. So the, um, that sort of those people with those skills is really, you know, starting to blossom. And, and the more the young, um, PhD clinicians coming through have quite often got that sort of training as well mm. so you know I think that's helpful so what we so with the, the last three PhD students we've had have all spent a year two of them at Manchester we will Will Dixon, so he's got a a rheumatology epidemiology unit in Manchester. So that's really great training for them. They spent a year there. And then Joanna Chu, who's just been awarded a PhD, spent a year in Cambridge and and got some epi skills there, as well as, you know, research skills and some clinical skills as well.
0: So it occurs to me that the opportunity to go overseas can be quite advantageous for learning and for career and for. Finding amazing mentors as as you did.
1: Oh, so, I think it's also fantastic for you know future collaborations as well, mm-hmm. and you know, and they can pop up in different different ways. I've just been asked to be an external mentor for a, a young rheumatologist who's applying for grants at Boston University, for example. So that's one way. Peter Merkel, who, just Peter Merkel, who's a you know, world renowned vasculitis expert. He was actually a junior junior faculty rheumatologist when I was in, in Boston. And we didn't actually have any overlook with research where when I was there, but now we have a lot of research interests in common and collaborate
0: often. Mm-hmm. Those opportunities often come in someone's earlier stages of their careers, which is sometimes will time with them being a parent as well. And that's not everyone's not everyone obviously is a parent, but if they are a parent, that logistically can create some challenges getting a family overseas but you did it with a two and a half year old child just in the interests of I guess understanding how to make careers work, what advice might you have for people who are parents who are looking at going overseas and managing that extra i guess extra logistical challenge of bringing a family or a child or children with you.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, I guess men do it all the time. But with out with us, we, you know, we were both. My husband was doing a post job, job, and I was doing that. So we we decided we didn't want our child, our daughter, to be in full time childcare. So we both undertook to work four days a week. So she she went to childcare three days a week, and it, it was great. You know, it worked really well well for us. And <laughs> Because of the way Boston was, we actually had to pay the full-time childcare even though we were only using it three days a week because their idea of part-time childcare was to childcare to finish it either lunchtime, three o'clock or five o'clock. So we still had to pay full-time which meant that if there was a backup plan if things fell apart and one of us had to go into work on our day off, we could use that. So yeah, both of us being quite flexible helped helped a lot and to be honest when you when you're doing research work as opposed to clinical work if you know something happens and you have to work from home for a day it's not so much of an issue with research work so that flexibility which I wouldn't have had back in Australia to be honest so I guess that I started after my third child I was working 0.5 and just I've gradually over the years I've increased it so now I work well I'm paid. eight by the hospital and then I the other point two. Is a combination. Up until recently, I was doing some drug regulatory work for the state government here, but I also am on the pharmaceutical benefits advisory committee PBAC, and so that I get paid for that work as well. So mm-hmm. that's how I spend my other day at the moment. But it's nice to have that flexibility on a Friday to work from home and set my own schedule.
0: It's a remarkable amount of work that you're contributing. And I know that probably makes you feel uncomfortable for me to say that, but it is a precursor to me. Don't be squirming. Yeah, I'm sure, but it's a precursor for me to ask this what keeps the drive going? Like this, that amount of work comes from a real passion and a real drive. It's like, and it's not as if you just started your career five years ago and have still got that energy to burn. Where does that come from?
1: I, I guess it's just passion for wanting things to be better. I, yeah, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm, I, I can, like, I, I'm, I like to have. Solutions. I like actually like to be quite. I like to be busy. It drives me crazy when people say, "Oh, you must be so busy." It's a plane. you know. But actually, I, I quite like it. And that's not to say I don't collapse on a couch and I don't like to read a book and all those things. My hiking and other other things. But yeah, I, I find I find that there's always something to that I want to do that will keep me keep me busy and things. Funding
0: is obviously underpinning all research. What wanted to ask your thoughts about the NHMRC.
1: Yeah, NHMRC has become really competitive. I mean, obviously the MRSS has underduced under my other funding stream, all that, although that's quite an interesting beast because it tends to be very targeted. It's just, just it's the problem with the grant process is how time-consuming it is and how much that um, time that takes up the arthritis Australia and the great contribution that ARA makes to their research scheme has been really fantastic for young researchers to get seed funding to get things going. We also do some pharma trials, which help fund some of the led research, and especially for those little smaller smaller projects. And also, we're lucky enough because we've got a statistician in house, we can we, we can do some quite. You know, some of our research is done on the and oily rack. I think the thing that concerns me is lack of, you know, the, the investigative grants. I think that's a really important way, and I think that they really need to be increased, particularly for women. We went to a workshop with Anne's Health, though, who's really and actually, my particularly at the higher levels, the number of uh, women getting those higher, that their career really mean that. Getting way more exposed than women, so that needs to be addressed. And also, you know, just I've just done some reviewing of NHMRC of NHMRC and NRF grants, and you know, still looking at the investigators, and they're still, you know, really more men than women on those grants. And I think that's really got to change.
0: What advice might you have for early career? Rheumatologists.
1: Find something you're passionate about, and I, and that might be teaching. It might be clinical work. That might be research. And then you know, build on that. And you know, there'll be you know, there'll be times when you you can't spend as much time because you've got family commitments, and family's so important. So I never regret one minute of the time I spent with my 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 kids when they were younger. So you know, there's times when it will look like oh, this is gonna you know when will this ever happen and I think just you know you've got a long career you've probably got a 30 year career or more and so if it takes a little bit more time don't worry about it and just and do things you love yeah
0: Um, and then the follow-up is for people for rheumatologists who might be 20 years on in their career and might be like many people do when they are mid life or mid career reflecting on "hmm you know, am I fully satisfied in what i'm doing?" Do you have any tips or suggestions that you might offer in that space
1: well i think I think again that means you know maybe sitting down and thinking about where your priorities are for both your career and your life because it may be that actually you want to you want, you want to concentrate on some not so much your work and some other things in your life like coaching the football team or you know spending time with your elderly parents or whatever it is but if you want to refocus on your on your work I think it's worth you know finding a colleague you can sit down and have a con- honest conversation to, to and fro with I think mentors are really necessary through your entire yeah so I, I still have some mentoring myself because I, I need it sometimes as well and I think you know there's some great initiatives like for example there's some new grants through the ARA which is a private practice grant so if you're a private practitioner and you want to do some research there's a new grant that's available for supporting research in private practice so that's a new initiative or if you want to have a look at some quality improvement there are some you know great quality improvement courses And the other, you know, that are around, or if you want to concentrate on teaching, then you know, take the time to, you know, chat to your local university, or you know, because many many rheumatologists do have associations with universities.
0: That's great.
1: Is there anything else that you'd like to add to wrap up? I think what I would say is that I feel very positive about research in Australia. I know that there's always issues about funding stream but I think what I see of the, the young rheumatology researchers coming through is that I've, I'm learning a lot from them and I'm really excited about the research that they're doing and I think I would never want to deter anyone from, you know, choosing, choosing research and I think Sometimes people say, you know, I've done a PhD, you know, people have done a PhD and then, you know, they maybe go into private practice, but I just don't think a high degree is ever wasted because it just helps you with, you know, interpreting new evidence that's coming through, you know, thinking about how to treat the patient and, you know, and then getting involved in other ways in research. So I feel very positive about it and, you know, I think. Some of the things, you know, the ARA has set a research strategic plan, which is the first time that's been done. And the ARA research fund, you know, is well well funded. So, you know, there's lots of opportunities there as well.
0: Professor Catherine Hill, thank you so much for your time.
1: Okay, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, search for us on your favorite podcast player and subscribe, leave us a review if you like. If you've got any tips or want to let me know what you're talking about, email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. Thanks for tuning in.